0: G'day, welcome back to the Equip podcast. And here we are with part two on unconditional election. We're going to consider some of the objections against this doctrine. And if you haven't listened to part one to understand what unconditional election means in the scriptures, then I encourage you to go back and give that a listen. Now, I'm going to go through five objections. We got through the first three in class. So I'll give a little bit more detail on the last two. And just want to say uh, thank you to Dr. Ian Maddock, who has supplied these in our, our lecture notes when I was going through Bible college on this subject. Um, so i have depended on him both for uh, seeing the, the uh, nature of these objections, but also uh, he's done a lot of work on John Wesley and, uh, and George Whitfield, uh, who were two 18th century pastors and, and theologians uh, who held very different views on um, unconditional election. And he, he sort of channels both of them in thinking through these objections. And I, felt, I find it a really helpful way of giving voice to both sides of the argument. Uh, and so thankful to his work in that area as well. So, if unconditional election is true, then a first objection would be, why bother preaching? Why bother evangelizing? Here's the way that John Wesley who very much disagrees with unconditional election, here's how he puts it. If this be so, that is, that election is unconditional, then all preaching is vain. It is needless to them that are elected, for they, whether with preaching or without, will infallibly be saved. And it is useless to them that are not elected, for they cannot possibly be saved. They, whether with preaching or without, Will infallibly be damned. In either case, preaching is vain, as your hearing is also in vain. It's a pretty charged up missile, isn't it? Um, you can hear what he's saying. If God has already chosen everything from the outset, why bother preaching? Because those who are chosen will come anyway, and those who aren't chosen won't come anyway. So don't bother preaching. Now, he was uh, John Wesley was an extremely passionate preacher uh, and cared a lot about preaching the gospel to as many people as possible. Uh, and so this is one of the reasons why he thought unconditional unconditional election was was uh, incorrect. It's because we do preach and people do come and we need to be passionate about these things. How would you respond to that? You might want to pause the tape here if this isn't something that you have thought about before. Maybe just pause and think, how would you respond to Wesley's argument there? Well, here's how George Whitfield, who very much agreed with unconditional election, here's what he said. Oh dear sir, what kind of reasoning, or rather, sophistry, is this? So he's saying, that's not actually a good reason. Hath not God, who hath appointed salvation for a certain number... Appointed also the preaching of the word as a means to bring them to it. Wesley's problem is that he disconnects the ends and the means. So the end being someone's salvation. But how do they come to to salvation? By the means of preaching. God has appointed, or if you want even, elected both some to be saved and the means to get them there. In other words, he's not just set the destination, he's also provided the car. And the car in this case is preaching the word. So it would be uh, biblically irresponsible to disconnect those two things that Scripture very clearly teaches. And what Wesley's doing is leaning into uh, sort of a, a human logic that's that's not actually guided by clear biblical witness. When we go to the scriptures, it's very clear that God wants us to preach. Romans 10, how are they here unless someone goes, right? Um, and and also, on the other hand, he has appointed people, some people, to be saved. And we've seen that in the, the foregoing references in our last podcast. Not to mention as well that um, when Paul went and he preached in, uh, was it Corinth, I think, in, in Acts 18, Um, God encouraged him by saying, I have many people in this city. That's Acts 18.10. Now, what he meant by that was that I have many people that I have chosen that are yet to come to salvation. Therefore, go and preach to them. So it's not, there are people who are elect, therefore don't bother preaching to them. Actually, the, the biblical witness is, there are people who are elected here, go. You don't know which ones they are. Just go and preach to everyone, do as much as you can, because it gives you great hope that if they're chosen, they will respond and will come to faith. I think that's a great encouragement to us as we seek to evangelize. If we believe that God is the one who saves, then even as we are weak and stumbling and fearful, we can just do our best and trust him and he'll bring the people that are his. I think that's actually a great encouragement rather than an objection. However, secondly, and this is a similar question, if unconditional election is true, why bother striving to be holy? That is, if God's already decided your salvation, there's no incentive to actually grow as a Christian. There's only an incentive to be lazy and sinful. And this is what John Wesley says. Uh, He says that this is my grand objection to unconditional election. It's an error, I know, because if it were true, the whole scripture must be false. But it's not only for this, because it's an error, that I so earnestly oppose it, but because it's an error of so pernicious consequence to the souls of men, because it directly and naturally tends to hinder the inward work of God in every stage of it. You say, Christ died only for the elect, and all these must and shall be saved. Oh, says a hearer, then if I'm one of the elect, I must and shall be saved. Therefore... I may safely sin a little longer, for my salvation cannot fail. Again, you might like to pause and think about your response to that. Here's how Wesley responded. He said, oh, sorry, how Whitfield responded. He said, I thought that one who carries perfection to such an exalted pitch as Mr. Dear Wesley does, would know that a true lover of the Lord Jesus Christ would strive to be holy for the sake of being holy, and work for Christ out of love and gratitude, without any regard to the rewards of heaven or fear of hell. You remember, dear sir, what Skoogel, one of the Puritans, says, love's a more powerful motive that does them move. In other words, the doctrine of election isn't meant to make people lazy. It's meant to make them humble and grateful. Because what have I done to bring salvation to myself? no work. And it's not because I was smarter. It's not because I got it. Oh, It's just because God was gracious. He chose me. I did nothing. The only thing I brought to the equation was my sin. And so because I'm so humbled by that and so grateful, of course I want to live the way God wants me to. Of course I want to love the Lord Jesus. Hence that quote, loves a more powerful motive that does their move. Now, someone who doesn't care about holiness probably hasn't really been elected. That is, if they continue in unrepentant sin over the course of their life, then really their fruits are showing that they have no foundation. Not only a foundation of faith, but a foundation of God having chosen. them, As Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. Number three, if unconditional election is true, then surely that lets us off the hook. It makes God responsible for our unbelief. Now, um, the the idea here is that if God elects people to salvation, and on that basis they come to believe, then he deserves praise. And that's correct. But on the other hand, if God elects people for judgment, that results in their unbelief, then by the same token, God deserves blame. See, there's, there's like a... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for here? A symmetry between the two. If God elects for salvation or judgment, that leads to belief or unbelief. Then it leads to either praise or blame. And that means if someone is not believing, then God is to blame. However, Romans 9 deals with this question quite directly. From verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? And this would actually be the perfect moment For Paul to say, who can resist his will? Well, actually, you and me. We're the ones who at the end of the day have the final, decisive, ultimate decision about whether we're saved. But he doesn't say that because it's not actually our will that determines the matter. This is where Paul goes with it. Who can resist his will? Why does he find fault? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God has the right to do as he wills with his creation. That's the big point here. And since he has that right, he prepares people for different destinies, right? He prepares some for honourable use, some for dishonourable use, uh, some for wrath, and some for. ...for mercy. But, there is a bit of a a nuanced difference between the two groups. See, in verse 22, those who are prepared for destruction... ...are endured with patience. Whereas, on the other hand, those who are prepared for mercy or for glory... Um, verse 24, are called. The nuanced difference is that in verse 22, God endures those prepared for destruction. So, he's he's sort of, as it were, patiently putting up with. And it's, it's, there's sort of a, a passive element there, an element of passing over them, not choosing them, not electing them, but enduring them in the meantime. Versus, on the other hand, those who are prepared for mercy and for glory, God actively chooses and calls them. So, rather than being a symmetry between election for salvation and election for judgment, there's actually a difference. There's asymmetry. The elect are chosen or called for salvation, while the unsaved are endured until their judgment. They are passed over for salvation. So, what we see here is that um, uh, those elected to salvation and those not elected to salvation are actually treated differently, as it were. They're not chosen in the same way. And so, it's not right to say some are elected for salvation, some elected for judgment. It's rather to say some are elected for salvation and some are not elected for salvation. They are passed over. There's another reason that um, these two things aren't quite symmetrical. And that's because, if you come over to Romans 10, uh, it's clear that we are still genuinely held responsible for our our choice. We do make a choice to trust in Jesus. And yes, it is contingent on God having chosen or not chosen us, um, but we still do make a genuine choice. Um, J.I. Packer puts it this way, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught us side by side in the same Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text, and I would say, as in going from Romans 9 to Romans 10, where we read that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible, moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality and man's responsibility is a reality too. I could say they're two sides of the same coin. And some people short-circuit this tension between the two by saying, well, God must have limited his sovereignty by giving us complete free will. But, you know, that's never actually taught in Scripture. We are taught that God elects or passes over individuals for salvation, and that we make a genuine moral choice. And in this sense, it is actually we who are culpable for our unbelief and not God. So to, to line up the two sides, if God elects some for salvation and on that basis they come to belief by a genuine choice, then it's still God who deserves the praise. That's right to say. But... God doesn't elect people for judgment. He passes over them. He doesn't elect them for salvation. And that means that unbelief is is their responsibility. They are making that choice. Uh, and so the person is responsible and God doesn't deserve the blame. Uh, the Canons of Dort, which is just another old document, uh, I'm, I'm going to pick up, if you see the paragraph on your sheet, I'm going to pick up about halfway through, um, God's decision is to leave the unelect in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves and not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. And this is the decision of what's called reprobation which does not at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, but rather it's fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger. You might want to ponder those words uh, if this is something you still struggle with. Um, but I think that uh, that, that uh, the idea that we're left, let off the hook and God's responsible for our unbelief is, is not a biblically defensible one. Okay, number four. If unconditional election is true, then surely the God of Calvinism is guilty of unfairness. So that is, it represents God as this capricious, sort of mean-spirited divine being. Wesley puts it this way. Unconditional election represents our blessed Lord as a hypocrite, a deceiver of the people. A man void of common sincerity. For it cannot be denied that he everywhere speaks as if he was willing that all men should be saved. Therefore, to say he was not willing that all men should be saved is to represent him as a mere hypocrite and dissembler. Unconditional election represents the most holy God as worse than the devil, as both more false, more cruel. And more unjust, more false, because the devil, liar as he is, hath never said he willeth all men to be saved. More unjust, because the devil cannot, if he would, be guilty of such injustice as you would ascribe to God when you say that God condemned millions of souls to everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels for continuing in sin, which, for want of that grace he will not give them, they cannot avoid. And more cruel, happy as he is, to doom his creatures, whether they will or no, to endless misery. Really challenging. Again, you might want to pause and just consider, how would you respond to this? Here is how Whitfield responded. Surely Mr. Wesley will own God's justice in imputing Adam's sin to his posterity. And also that after Adam fell, and his posterity in him, that is his children, God might justly have passed them all by, without sending his own son to be saviour for anyone. Unless you heartily agree to both these points, you do not believe in original sin aright. If you do own them, then you must acknowledge the doctrine of election and reprobation, that is, God passing over people. To be highly just and reasonable. For if God might justly impute Adam's sin to all, and afterwards have passed by all, then he might justly pass by some. What Whitfield is saying here is is two things. Firstly, that original sin means none of us deserve anything. So, it doesn't make God cruel to, to doom us to hell, as it were. Actually, that's just. It's entirely just for God to judge us. Uh, And then secondly, um, that we, as we said before, should marvel that God has chosen any, right? It's just for him to pass over all and not grant any grace to all. And yet he does to some. Um, And and that actually represents God as abundantly merciful, not a liar or unjust or cruel. Uh, The other thing to note here as well is that uh, Whitfield, oh, sorry, Wesley says at the end that God dooms his creatures, whether they will or not, to endless misery. That's his caricature of the Reformed view of God. Um, however, the, the Reformed position would say that all of those who will to come to Christ Jesus and trust in him do come, and they are welcomed by God. And those who do not will won't come, and they stand under God's judgment. I mean, that's just basic Bible, right? Um, but those who will are those chosen by God, and those not chosen by God will never will, as it were. <laughs> they won't choose uh, to trust in Jesus, or at least not until their dying day. And you might remember the uh, little illustration we gave on Sunday that you know, imagine walking through the gates of heaven, and on the front of the gate, over the archway, are the words, "Whoever so wills may come." And so we say, "I will." I will trust in Jesus, repent of my sin, and we enter into heaven. Praise God. But then we turn around and we look at the other side of the gate and there across the the other side of the archway is chosen before the foundation of the world. From our decision point, we make a, uh, sorry, from our point of view, we make a decision. We walk through the gates, we trust in the Lord Jesus, but then we find that we trust because he has first chosen us. And so um, Wesley's caricature that, You know, someone might come to the gate and be, well, I will come, I will come, and then be told by a bodyguard, no, you may not, because you weren't chosen. It doesn't hold water. It's only those who will to come that, in fact, um, look back and see that they were chosen. Uh, It's only those who are chosen who will to come. One more thing to say as well, just around the will of God, because um, Wesley makes this point here that God says he is willing that all men be saved. And that's true. That is a that is an absolutely biblical thing to say. And and remember in Ezekiel we, we read recently that God is um, what is it? He he is not willing that anyone should perish, right? Um, now what we should say is that God's will, as it's represented in Scripture, is a complex reality. And we should expect that. Um, my will and your will is more complex than our cats will, or our dog's will, or our birds' will, right? Uh, our pets have a certain will, but it is far less complex than our own. And that that's just of a degree between creatures, but we're talking here of a degree between creature and creator. Of course, God's will is going to be more complex than we can fully understand. And so um, often theologians will talk about two categories of God's will in just a, a best attempt to describe. What we're talking about And they'll say There's the will of precept And the will of decree The will of precept Is his will As it has been revealed to us So think about this As, as the sun shining down Here it is and all can see Alright The will of decree is, is more like the will Hidden behind a cloud uh, It's, it's uh, his, his sort of hidden purpose His hidden plan Behind all things um, and so, um, I was trying to think, is there, is there a, maybe maybe with, um, say, parents and kids, this is not a perfect analogy, but, you know, um, you might say in terms of your revealed will that, um, you know, I, I don't want to, my will is not to punish my kids, right? I want to see them happy, I want to see them fulfilled, want to see them obedient and I just don't, it doesn't make me feel happy to, to punish them. And so my will is not to punish my child, but, but actually in our heart of hearts, our bigger will is that we want to see our kids grow up and be good citizens and faithful followers of Jesus and respectful and kind people. We know we're going to need to discipline them at times. And so we've actually got sort of this, this other will inside us that is bigger than, um, what what might be on the surface. Imperfect analogy, but it just shows we can, we can have two different wills operating at once. And God is the same uh, in some extent. So for example, his will of precept, his revealed will, the sun shining down, is that he genuinely desires all people to be saved. And he grieves over those who do not come to him. And he extends his hands out and says, come, come, come. But then behind the cloud in the, the will of decree, his hidden will, is that he genuinely desires only the elect to be saved. Now, if that wasn't true, then some people not ending up being saved would mean God's will has failed, right? If if his only desire was that all people be saved everywhere, and then some people aren't saved, then that means that God's will has failed to be accomplished. And we know that wherever whatever God wills is done, right? Uh, Whatever he he is in heaven, he does what pleases him. Nothing constrains him. Uh, And so it must be that he also has another will. And we see that in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Remember, his plan, his purpose from the creation of the world is that some would be elected and would be saved. We don't know who they are, but God does. He hasn't revealed it to us. He's kept that information behind the cloud. All he's revealed to us is he wants everyone to come. So anyone, whoever you are, come. And then we're going to see, I think, in the x-ray light of eternity, when we look back, oh, but here was God's hidden will, the, the superintending will behind all things, that actually gives him greater glory that only these ones ended up coming. Hard to sit with, but I think that's what scripture presents for us. One final objection to unconditional election. If unconditional election is true, then surely God's choice is just Arbitrary. Isn't it just a random choice? Why did he choose me and not my mum or my dad? My brother, my sister, my son, my daughter. And the assumption behind this is, if I can't understand the reason why God has done something, then it's arbitrary, perhaps even wrong. And we might have this idea that God simply just sort of looks out over His creation and goes, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Chooses some, doesn't choose other. But I think scripture paints another picture where, for example, in Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't expect to always know his reasons. It's also the fact that scripture hasn't revealed the answer to us. And because scripture is sufficient, then it's not necessary for us to know the answer bit of an illustration of this would be how, um, you know, if you go traveling and you've got small kids, you don't give them an adult-sized travel bag. You give them a child-sized travel bag. Uh, in real life, you know, a five-year-old kid might ask their parents, Mom, Dad, how did I get here? Right, the question that every parent fears. And, and you might just give an answer that's like, well, because mummy and Daddy love you very much. Right? How did I get here? Yeah, we love you very much. That's how you got here. <laughs> but how did that make me get here? <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Well, I'll tell you when you're older. <laughs> right? There's a question you don't need to fully understand yet. It's a, It's a bag that's actually too big for the small child to carry. And so you only give them an answer that's the size of the bag they need. And I think that's the case here as well. We don't know why God has chosen some and not others. But he tells us all we need to know right now to get on with preaching the gospel, trusting the gospel, knowing and loving him and loving each other. The warning that John Calvin gives us is that if we try to understand why God chose some and not others, we enter a world of frustration. But the doctrine of election is meant to be for our comfort and our assurance, not frustration. It's meant to bring about humility and gratitude and love for God. Keep that in mind. Also, just not to mention, the way that election is talked about in Scripture is never impersonal or detached. It's never talked about as arbitrary. It's always personal and relational. Remember that, that meaning of the word foreknow is, is intimately knowing and choosing someone. We have a God who predestines us in love and chooses us in Christ. It's an overflow of his gracious, lavish love for people who haven't earned it and don't deserve it. It's not just as though he goes, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, I guess you'll do. Now, he sets his love on us. So rather rather than being arbitrary, it's actually a loving, gracious gift. Now, this brings us to a conclusion on unconditional election, and I'm just going to quote, again, Wayne Grudem here. The doctrine of election tells us that I am a Christian simply because God in eternity past Decided to set his love on me. But why did he decide to set his love on me? Not for anything good in me, but simply because he decided to love me. There's no more ultimate reason than that. It humbles us before God to think in this way. It makes us realize that we have no claim on God's grace whatsoever. Our salvation is totally due to grace alone. And our only appropriate response is to give God eternal praise. Good words to finish on. When we meet in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the next step in the process. It's not actually going to be the L in tulip. It's going to be the I, which stands for irresistible grace. And that is, how is it that someone actually chooses to trust in Jesus Christ? Because while election, God's choice, Before the creation of the world, while that choice is unconditional, there is a condition to our salvation. And that is that we choose to cling to him in faith. We'd all agree with that. Uh, And so, how is it that that choice actually comes about if God has elected us? And if we're paralyzed, as it were, by total depravity? Well, we'll find out in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys.